In today's passage, Moses is visited by his father-in-law. I don't know if you've thought about this at all, but I understand that sometimes uh, being a father-in-law can be a bit of a challenge, especially uh, when it comes to son-in-laws. Thankfully, uh, in the passage today, it looks like Moses and his wife Zipporah's dad named Jethro have a very good relationship. And uh, in this section of text, the, the passage actually records two instances or two interactions that Moses and his father-in-law have. There's an evening that they have together, and then there's a next day interaction. That's what the passage, if you didn't read through it, in Exodus 18 provides. It covers the interactions of Moses and his father-in-law for an evening and then the next day. And if you've kind of grown up in the church, it's likely that the interactions with Moses and his father-in-law the next day are more familiar to you. And so that's where I want to pick up the conversation today in verse 13, where it says, The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? See, Moses' father-in-law is a little bit confused about what's going on, and so he kind of asks what's happening as Moses is playing this role, the passage says, of judge. Not that he's being judgmental, he's actually playing the role of mediator of people's problems and troubles. Basically, as people had disputes, especially disputes with one another, they came to Moses and Moses, Moses kind of mediated them on behalf of God. Or at least that's what he explained to his father-in-law that he was intending to do. Look at verse 15. It says there, Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. See, from Moses' perspective, he was bringing God's will, God's heart, God's values to his people to enable them to flourish to a greater degree. As they had difficulties and conflicts and disputes, they would come to Moses, and Moses would kind of mitigate on God's behalf by bringing God's heart and God's word to their situation. And so from Moses' from Moses's perspective, he was simply trying to bring the most of God to his people which is surprising uh, when you consider Jethro's reaction. In verse 17, it says there, Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. Appreciate here that uh, Jethro's critique of Moses is not one of motive, it's one of method. Because where Moses is intending to bring God to his people, from Jethro's perspective, he's creating a lose-lose. He's losing for himself and his people are losing. And so Jethro provides an alternate strategy. You can read about it yourself in Exodus 18, but basically he encourages his son-in-law to implement a system of care. 
to essentially create a structure among all the people of Israel and to organize them into groups of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And these groups of tens can kind of mediate on behalf of God to one another. They can help solve each other's problems. But as the issues and problems escalate, then these layers of support in the system of care can come alongside and add additional help. And in that way, Jethro advises Moses, he can experience a win-win where he can carry the load of the most difficult cases and the people can experience satisfaction by experiencing more of God's flourishing among them. That's what happens in this episode the next day between Moses and his father-in-law. His father-in-law advises this system of care, not unlike the system of care that we've employed in a church like ours called our life group ministry, where through a structure and through a system of distributed care, we can all experience care together. Now, if you take a step back, though, it kind of makes you wonder why this particular episode has been included in this very critical section of text in the book of Exodus, and maybe more importantly, why the night before episode is included before it. Because if you read there, you read that it's a very, at first glance, a, a very uneventful uh, relationship that happens there. Look at what it says in verse 7 where it begins. It says there, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Not unlike what I have to do on Christmas morning when Becky and I visit her parents. <laughs> it says there, they greeted each other and then went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. It's a very uneventful you know, non-controversial kind of interaction between Moses and his father. Like brings him into his tent, shares the stories of all of God's faithfulness and all that he did through the Exodus, kind of bringing Jethro up to speed. And even after Jethro hears this, his reaction is also very non-controversial. Look what it says in verse nine. It says there, Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hands of the Egyptians. And he's so inspired by hearing what God had done that he celebrates with Moses and eventually leads them into an experience of worship together. And that's kind of the end of the episode. And so here you have this evening together recorded where Jethro celebrates with Moses. And then this day after event where Jethro is critical of Moses. And it kind of makes you take a step back and wonder, why have these two episodes been included, let alone included together? Well, from my perspective, I believe that they've been deliberately included and deliberately included together to serve as a contrast in reactions. On the one hand, you have Jethro celebrating, and on the other hand, you have him critical. And if you pay attention, there's a contrast between what he's celebrating and what he's critical of. On the one hand, he's celebrating the faithfulness of God to work through the whole people of Israel. That's what Moses would have been recounting with Jethro, the way that every Israelite demonstrated obedience to mark with blood their doorposts so that God could protect them through the Passover, or the way that every 
the, the way that every Israelite responded to Moses' invitation, packed their bags and left when he said, now's the time to leave Egypt. And the way that every single Israelite would have taken that courageous step of faith to step into the Red Sea, onto that dry ground as God parted the seas so that they could walk through, protected by God, in order to escape the chasing Egyptians. And in every case, what Jethro was celebrating was the way that God worked through all of Israel together. And at the end of the day, what he was critical of with Moses the next day. See, I believe it wasn't just an issue of strategy that Jethro was critiquing, even though a church like ours has employed a very similar strategy of care through our life group system. I believe at the end of the day, what Jethro is critical of is something deeper. He's critical of a spirituality, not just a strategy, because in employing that strategy where only Moses can mediate it on behalf of God, Moses was robbing Israel of the fuller experience of God's activity among them. Take a step back and consider the context of where this passage finds itself in the story of the Exodus. Right? God has set Israel free from over 400 years of slavery. They found themselves in the wilderness. And now in this section of text, we see five episodes that intend to teach Israel five very basic kind of entry level lessons on how to live a newfound free life of faith as a community. And in this series we've called Learning Liberation, we've been learning all the basics all over again. The basics of obedience, the basics of living in God's provision, the basics of trust, the, the basics of faithfulness. And now, almost as punctuation, it seems like the author has included this episode and the contrast of these two episodes as a deliberate kind of exclamation point on this section and on these elementary lessons. Because if Israel is going to experience all of God's flourishing among them, by contrast of what Jethro celebrated and what he criticized, we need to appreciate that it took all of the people of Israel in order to experience that. All of the people of Israel in obedience, all of the people of Israel in faith, all of the people of Israel living with that posture of provision, all of the people of Israel engaging together in order to experience all of God's wonder and all of the fullness of his flourishing among them. That's what was wrong in the way that Moses was behaving as judge. He was robbing them of that experience because as Exodus 18 intended to teach them then and us today, if you want to experience all of God, it actually requires all of us. If you want to experience all of God, it requires all of us. And I think that's a message for many of us today in this day and age, if not more so than it was to the people of Israel in Moses' day and age. You think about the way that a community of faith is organized in our time, and especially in a context like ours, we actually have people who get paid vocationally to do church work. And it can kind of lend to the assumption that it's certain people's job to provide ministry on behalf of God, and it's the rest of our jobs to just kind of be recipients of it. 
It can even get confused as you look at the life and the, uh, the ministry of Jesus in the gospel accounts, because in many ways, it seemed like the crowds just kind of followed around Jesus. And Jesus was the one provider of all of God's miraculous supernatural activity. He provided all the teaching, and, you know, did the, the majority of all the healing and, you know, all of the, the ministry work, all of the miraculous things happened through Jesus and other people were kind of recipients of them. And when you look at that, you can assume that's the way the people of faith are intended to work until you pay attention to how Jesus himself described the church functioning. Look at what he said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, where he says there, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Right? Jesus here is transferring his divine authority to one of his followers in Peter. And what Catholics believe, they call it apostolic succession, they actually believe that Jesus as one person is transferring that authority to one and only one person, and that succession of the transfer of authority is how we've ended up today with the modern-day Pope. What Protestant theology believes and the way that I understand the passage is by understanding the play on words that Jesus is using to Peter when he says, on this rock, I will build my church because Peter's name in the original language meant rock. And what I understand Jesus to be saying is on a rock or on a Peter like you, on a person who recognizes me in faith as the leader of their life, as the Messiah sent from God, on Peter's, on rocks like you, I'm going to build my church, my bride, and my body of Christ. We understand around here that God intends to see his life and his flourishing flow through a body of Christ, through all of us together, not just through individual parts of it. And so even as someone who makes their living doing church work, I don't understand my job as bringing God to a number of people to simply be recipients of it. I understand my job to be facilitating all of us to be bringing the life and love and vibrancy of Jesus to each other so that together we can flourish the most. That's what I read in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, when it says there, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In the same way that it's taught in Exodus chapter 18, I believe that Ephesians 4 paints that picture for the New Testament church today. That if we are going to experience the fullness of Christ, if we're going to experience the most of the flourishing dynamics of God among us, it's going to require every single one of us to be channels of the life of God to one another. And it's going to require some of us as leaders, as the passage says, to equip, to enable the rest of us to be those channels of the life of God to one another so that the most of God can be experienced by the most of us. If that's a radically new idea to you, I hope that you can take some time to reflect on it and let your head kind of align with what the Old Testament teaches in Exodus 18, what Jesus teaches in Matthew 16, and what the New Testament teaches, among other places, in Ephesians 4. 
And instead of thinking that, you know, the church is to be run by certain people who provide all of God, like, you know, priests, for example, that you would understand that the word priest actually means mediator. And in the New Testament, uh, the Bible intends for all believers to be mediators and play the role of priests to one another in a vision for the church that is referred to as the priesthood of all believers. And if you happen to still think that it's some people's jobs, especially the paid professionals, to play the role of minister, again, understand that the role, the word minister simply means servant. And in Jesus' vision for the life that we would live together as a community for each other and others, we are to serve one another in love. That's why at Southridge, we don't just refer to our life group structure as a care support system. We refer to it as mutual member ministry because we understand that in order for us to experience the absolute most of the life of God, enabling us to experience the most of his flourishing among us, it takes all of us to experience all of God. So practically speaking today, I think there are two main takeaways for every single one of us who consider us a part of this spiritual family. The first is to consider practically whose faith do you own? Whose faith do you own? Not just what is your kind of token contribution to what God is up to around a community like ours, but at a very up close and personal way. Whose spiritual development are you, in part, taking responsibility to encourage and advance? And spouses, think about someone beyond just your spouse. And parents, think about someone just beyond your kids, right? Who across our community do you believe that God has placed in your life to be responsible, to nurture in their spiritual development? In whose spiritual development are you taking some responsibility? And then related to that, practically, you know, ask yourself, how are you investing in them? Who are you responsible for? And then practically, how are you investing in them? You know, in whom are you helping to resolve conflicts and to bring some of the wisdom and discernment of God to their difficult decisions? In whom are you providing lovingly hard truths to help protect them from living any further according to their blind spots? With whom are you providing practical care and support to meet their everyday needs? And in whom are you injecting some encouragement and enthusiasm and hope, especially during difficult times? In what practical ways are you making those investments of the life and vibrancy of Jesus Christ into others so together we can all, in a potluck way, be sharing the life of God with one another and experiencing the most of his flourishing together as a church family? Because as the passage teaches and Jesus affirms and the New Testament instructs the church today, if we're going to experience all of God, it's gonna require all of us. Gang, what a great way to wrap up this series, especially in the context of where we find ourselves today. Right on the cusp of a provincial reopening where in a matter of weeks, we're gonna to start to be able to experience the dynamic of meeting as life groups in person in outdoor settings, and eventually soon enough to be able to meet as large groups on Sunday, on Sunday mornings. You know, even in reduced capacities, we're gonna be able to regather in person again very soon. 
But as we do, as we're liberated from that, you know, kind of paralysis of lockdown, for some of us, it probably felt like 400 years of slavery. You know, God is providing us some very basics of this life of liberation. And I feel like this more than anything may matter the most. Because as we get set to reopen, we're not reopening so a whole bunch of us can crowd around a few of us and receive what God wants to provide through a few of us with the rest of us as recipients. That's actually robbing God of the fullness of how he wants to breathe his abundance into all of us. Just like Israel in Exodus 18, just like Jesus intended in the way that he set up his church, and just like the New Testament writers teach the Christian church since then. If we're going to experience the fullness and vibrancy of the life of God in a fully flourishing way, it's going to require the full engagement of every one of us to bring the life of God to each other. So ask yourself on the cusp of this exciting season of reopening what your piece is in contributing that. Because as we consider reopening together, let's remember, maybe more than anything else, if we're going to experience all of God, it's going to require all of us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're really excited about the season that you have us in and the hope that we have as we look to the future. We thank you for the way that you've wrapped this series up and for all of the ways that this series has pointed to a deeper, fuller experience of you. And I just pray that you would wake every single one of us up today to the responsibility that we all bear personally and that we bear together, not just to see your church thrive collectively, but to see every single one of us experience the most of you personally. God, it's only, as you said in Ephesians 4, it's only as each of us brings the fullness of you, as each of us does our own special work, that we grow and become healthy and full of love in the way that you fully intend. And so I pray that every single one of us can be challenged to consider who we own and in what ways we're contributing and generously sharing the life of you with others so that as we reopen, God, we can experience the fullness of the vibrancy of your risen life among us. And as we reopen, we can experience all of you, Jesus, because all of us are bringing you to each other. Please make us those people. We thank you for your faithfulness to do that among us. And we look forward to watching you work in your precious and powerful name we pray. Amen.